Welcome to today's Triple Z. The Triple Z Podcast is a daily program that you can use to help you fall asleep each night. Just turn down the volume, lay back, relax, and enjoy as you fall asleep. The story of Hagar is set in the early 17th century and follows the life of Hagar, an indentured servant in colonial Virginia. Hagar, a headstrong and independent woman, faces numerous challenges and hardships as she strives for freedom and independence in a society dominated by men. The novel explores themes of gender inequality, social class, and the struggle for personal autonomy. Mary Johnston was known for her historical fiction, often focusing on strong female characters and exploring social and political issues of her time. Hagar is considered one of her notable works, shedding light on the experiences of women in early America. If you enjoy our program, please be sure to write us a review on your podcast platform and share us with a friend. You both might sleep just a little better at night. Our website is triple Z, that's three Z's dot media. You can also like and share our content on Facebook or our Instagram account ZZZ Media Podcast. Music for today's episode was provided by the Sleep Channel on Spotify. Chapter 1 The Packet Boat Low Brage The people on deck bent over, some until heads touched knees, others, more exactly calculating, just sufficiently to clear the beams. The canal boat passed beneath the bridge and all straightened themselves on their camp stools. The gentlemen who were smoking put their cigars again between their lips. The two or three ladies resumed book or knitting. The sun was low and the sycamores and willows fringing the banks cast long shadows across the canal. The northern bank was not so clothed with foliage and one saw an expanse of bottom land meadows and cornfields, and beyond, low mountains, purple in the evening light. The boat slipped from a stripe of gold into a stripe of shadow, and from a stripe of shadow into a stripe of gold. The negro and the mule on the towpath were now but a bit of dusk in motion, and now were lit and, so to speak, powdered with gold dust. Now the rope between boat and towpath showed an arm-thick golden serpent, and now it did not show at all. Now a little cloud of gnats and flies, accompanying the boat, shone in burnished armor and now they put on a mantle of shade. A dark little girl of twelve years, dark and thin, sitting aft on the deck floor, her long, white stockinged legs folded decorously under her, her blue gingham skirt spread out, and her leghorn hat upon her knees appealed to one of the reading ladies. Aunt Serena, what is evolution? Miss Serena Ashendine laid down her book. Evolution, she said blankly, what is evolution? I heard grandfather say it just now. He said, that man Darwin and his evolution. Oh, said Miss Serena. He meant a very wicked and irreligious Englishman who wrote a dreadful book. Was it named Evolution? No. I forget just what it is called. 
beginning now. Origin of species. That was it. Have we got it in the library at Gilead Bomb? Heavens. No. Why? Your grandfather wouldn't let it come into the house. No lady would read it. Oh. Miss Serena returned to her novel. She sat very elegantly on the camp stool, a graceful, long-lined, drooping form in a greenish-gray delaine picked out with tiny daisies. It was made Polonaise. Miss Serena, alone of the people at Gilead Bomb, kept up with the fashions. At the other end of the long, narrow deck a nod country gentlemen were telling more stories. All had fought in the war, the war that had been over now for 20 years and more. There were an empty sleeve and a wooden leg in the group and other marks of bullet and saber. They told good stories, the country gentlemen, and they indulged in mellow laughter. Blue rings of tobacco smoke rose and mingled and made a haze about that end of the boat. How the gentlemen are enjoying themselves, said placidly one of the knitting ladies. The dark little girl continued to ponder the omission from the library. Aunt Serena Dash. Yes, Hagar. Is it like Tom Jones? Tom Jones. What do you know about Tom Jones? Grandfather was reading it one day and laughing and after he had done with it I got it down from the top shelf and asked him if I might read it and he said, no, certainly not. It isn't a book for ladies. Your grandfather was quite right. You read entirely too much anyway. Dr. B told your mother so. The little girl turned large, alarmed eyes upon her. I don't read half as much as I used to. I don't read except just a little time in the morning and evening and after supper. It would kill me if I couldn't read Dash. Well, well, said Miss Serena, I suppose we shall continue to spoil you. She said it in a very sweet voice and she patted the child's arm and then she went back to the wooing oat. She was fond of reading novels herself though she liked better to do macrum work and to paint porcelain plaques. The packet boat glided on. It was almost the last packet boat in the state and upon almost its last journey. Presently there would go away forever the long, musical winding of the packet boat horn. It would never echo any more among the purple hills, but the locomotive would shriek here as it shrieked elsewhere. Beyond the willows and sycamores, across the river whose reaches were seen at intervals, gangs of convicts with keepers and guards and overseers were at work upon the railroad. The boat passing through a lot, the dark little girl stared, fascinated, at one of these convicts, a trustee, a young white man who was there at the lot keepers on some errand and who now stood speaking to the stout old man on the coping of masonry. As the water in the lock fell and the boat was steadily lowered and the stone walls on either hand grew higher and higher, the figure of the convict came to stand far above all on deck. Dressed hideously in broad stripes of black and white, it stood against the calm evening sky, 
with a sense of something withdrawn and yet gigantic. The face was only once turned toward the boat with its freight of people who dressed as they pleased. It was not at all a bad face, and it was boyishly young. The boat slipped from the lock and went on down the canal between green banks. The negro on the towpath was singing and his rich voice floated across. For everywhere I went to pray, I met all hell right on my way. The country gentlemen were laughing again, wrapped in the blue and fragrant smoke. The captain of the packet boat came up the companionway and passed from group to group like a benevolent patriarch. Down below, supper was cooking, one smelled the coffee. The sun was slipping lower, and the green bottoms the frogs were choiring. Standing in the prow of the boat, a negro winded the long packet boat horn. It echoed and echoed from the purple hills. The dark little girl was still staring at the dwindling lock. The black and white figure, striped like a zebra, was there yet, though it had come down out of the sky and had now only the green of the country about and behind it. It grew smaller and smaller until it was no larger than a black and white woodpecker it was gone. She appealed again to Miss Serena. Aunt Serena, what do you suppose he did? Miss Serena, who prided herself upon her patience, put down her book for the tenth time. Of whom are you speaking, Hagar? That man back there, the convict. I didn't notice him. But if he is a convict, he probably did something very wicked. Hagar sighed. I don't think anybody ought to be made to dress like that. It had smudged my soul just to look at it. Convicts, said Miss Serena, are not usually people of fine feelings. And you ought to take warning by him never to do anything wicked. A silence while the trees and the flowering blackberry bushes went by, then Aunt Serena Dash. Yes? The woman over there with the baby, she says her husband got hurt in an accident and she's got to get to him and she hasn't got any money. The stout man gave her something and I think the captain wouldn't let her pay. Can't I when you can't I give her just a little? The trouble is, said Miss Serena, that you never know whether or not those people are telling the truth. And we are rich, as you know, Hagar. But if you want to, you can go ask your grandfather if he will give you something to give. The dark little girl undoubled her white stocking legs, got up, smoothed down her blue gingham dress, and went forward until the tobacco smoke wrapped her in a fragrant fog. Out of it came, genially, the colonel's voice, rich as old Madeira, shot like shot silk with curious electric tensions and strains and agreements, a voice at once mellifluous and capable of revealments demanding other adjectives, a voice that was the colonel's and spoke the colonel from head to heel. It went with his beauty, intact yet at fifty-eight, with the graying amber of his hair, mustache, and imperial, with his eyes, not large but finely shaped and colored, with his slightly aquiline nose, with the height and easy swing of his body that was neither too spare nor too full. It went with him from head to foot, and, 
Though it was certainly not a loud voice, nor a too much used one, it quite usually dominated whatever group for the moment and closed the kernel. He was speaking now in a kind of energetic, golden drawl. So he came up to me and said, Dash it, Ash and Dime. If gentlemen can't be allowed in this degenerate age to rule their own households and arrange their own duels dash he became aware of the child standing by him and put out a well-formed, nervous hand. Yes, Gypsy. What is it you want now? Hagar explained sedately. Her husband hurt and can't get to him to nurse him, said the colonel. Well, well. That's pretty bad. I suppose we must take up a collection. Pass the hat, Gypsy. Hagar went to each of the country gentlemen, not with the suggested hat, but with her small palm held out, cupped. One by one they dropped into a quarter or dime, and each, as his coin tinkled down, had for the collector of bounty a drawling, caressing, humorous word. She thanked each gentleman as his bit of silver touched her hand and thanked with a sedate little manner of perfection. Manners at Gilead Balm were notoriously of a perfection. Hagar took the money to the woman with the baby and gave it to her shyly with a red spot in each cheek. She was careful to explain when the woman began to stammer thanks that it was from her grandfather and the other gentlemen and that they were anxious to help. She was a very honest little girl with an honest wish to place credit where it belonged. Back beside Miss Serena she sat and studied the moving green banks. The sun was almost down, there were wonderful golden clouds above the mountains. Willow and Sycamore, on the river side of the canal, fell away. Across an emerald, marshy strip, you saw the bright, larger stream mirror for the bright sky, and across it in turn you saw limestone cliffs topped with shaggy woods, and you heard the sound of picks against rock and saw another band of convicts, white and black, making the railroad. The packet boat horn was blown again, long, musical, somewhat mournfully echoing. The negro on the towpath, riding sideways on his mule, was singing still. Aunt Serena Dash Yes, Hagar. Why is it that women don't have any money? Miss Serena closed her book. She glanced at the fields and the skyline. We shall be at Gilead Balm in ten minutes. You ask too many questions, Hagar. It is a very bad habit to be always interrogating. It is quite distinctly unladylike. Chapter 2 Gilead Bomb At the Gilead Bomb landing waited Captain Bob with a Negro man to carry up to the house the Colonel's portmanteau and Miss Serena's small leather trunk. The packet boat came in sight, white and slow as a deliberate swan, drew reflectively down the shining reach of water and sidled to the landing. The Colonel shook hands with all the country gentlemen and bowed to the ladies and the country gentleman bowed to Miss Serena, who in turn bent her head and smiled, and the captain said goodbye, and the colonel gave the attendant darkie a quarter, 
and the woman with the baby came to that side of the boat and held for a moment the hand of the dark little girl, and then the gangplank was placed and the three Ashendines passed over to the colonel's land. The horn blew again, long, melodious, the negro on the towpath said, get up, to the mule. Amid a waving of hands and a chorus of slow, agreeable voices, the packet boat glided from the landing and proceeded down the pink water between the willows and sycamores. Captain Bob, with his hound loon at his heels, greeted the returning members of the family. Well, Serena, did you have a pleasant visit? Hey, Gypsy, you've grown a week. Well, Colonel? The Colonel shook hands with his brother. Very pleasant time, Bob. Good old time people, too good for this damn newfangled world. But Dash, you breathed deep. I am glad to get home. I am always glad to get home. Well, everything all right? Right as a trivet. The Bishop's here and Mrs. Legrand came on the stage yesterday. That's good news, said the Colonel. The Bishop's always welcome and Mrs. Legrand is most welcome. The four began to walk toward the house, half a mile away, just visible among great trees. The dark little girl walked beside the hound, but the hound kept her nose in Captain Bob's palm. She was fond of Hagar, but Captain Bob was her god. As for Captain Bob himself, he walked like a curious, unfinished, somewhat flawed and shortened suggestion of his brother. He was shorter than the colonel and broader, hair, nose, eyes, mouth were nothing like so fine, carriage and port were quite different, he lacked the cachet, he lacked the grand air. For all that, the fact that they were brothers was evident enough. Captain Bob loved dogs and hunting and read the county newspaper and the sporting almanac. He was not complex. 99 times out of a hundred he acted from instinct and habit and the puzzling hundredth time he beat about for tradition and precedent. He was good-natured and spendthrift with brains enough for not too distant purposes. Emotionally, he was strongest in family affection. Missed you all, he now observed cheerfully. Gilead Bomb's been like a graveyard. How is mother? asked Miss Serena. She was picking her way delicately through the green lane between the evening primroses, the gray-green delane held just right. She wrote me that she burned her hand trying the strawberry preserves. It's all right now. Never saw old Miss looking better. The dark little girl turned her dark eyes on Captain Bob. How is my mother? Maria? Well, I should say that she was all right, too. I haven't heard her complain. Gad. I wish she would complain, ejaculated the colonel. Then one could tell her there was nothing to complain about. I hate these women who go through life with a smile on their lips and an indictment in their eyes when there's only the usual up and down of living to indict. 
I have rather they would wind thou hate than to wind, too. But women are all cowards. No woman knows how to take the world. The dark little girl, who had been walking between the Colonel and Captain Bob, began to tremble. Whoever else is a coward, my mother's not Dash. I don't think, father, you are Dash. Captain Bob was stronger yet. He was fond of Gypsy, and he thought that sometimes the family bore too hardly on Maria. Now and then he did a small bit of cloudy thinking, and when he did it he always brought forth the result with a certain curious clearing of the throat and nodding of the head, as though the birth of an idea was attended with considerable physical strain. No, Colonel, now he said, you oughtn't. Damn it, where'd we be but for women anyhow? As for Maria, I think you're too hard on Maria. The chief trouble with Maria is that she isn't herself an Ashendine. Of course, she can't help that, but I think it is a pity. Always did think that men ought to marry at least fifth or sixth cousins. Bring women in without blood and traditions of people they've got to live with, of course, there's trouble adapting. Seen it a score of times. Maria's just like the rest when they're not cousins. Odd somehow to be cousins. Bob, you are a perfect fool, remarked the colonel. He walked on, between the primroses, his hands behind him, tall and easy in his black, wide-skirted coat and his soft black hat. The earth was in shadow, but the sky glowed carnation. Against it stood out the long, low red brick house of Gilead Baum. At either gable end rose pyramidal cedars, high and dark against the vivid sky. In the lane there was the smell of dewy grass, and on either hand, back from the vine-draped rail fences, rolled the violet fields. Somewhere in the distance sounded the tinkling of cow bells. The ardent sky began to pale, the swallows were circling above the chimneys of Gilead Balm, and now the silver Venus came out clear. The little girl named Hagar liked a little going up the low hill on which the house stood. She was growing fast, and all journeys were exciting, and she was taking iron because she wasn't very strong, and she had had a week of change and had been thinking hard and was tired. She wanted to see her mother, and indeed she wanted to see all at Gilead Balm, for, unlike her mother, she loved Gilead Balm, but going up the hill she lagged a little. Partly it was to look at the star and to listen to the distant bells. She was not aware that she observed that which we call nature with a deep passion and curiosity, that beauty was the breath of her nostrils, and that she hungered and thirsted after the righteousness of knowledge. She only came slowly, after many years, into that much knowledge of herself. Today she was but an undeveloped child, her mind and nebula just beginning to spiral. In conversation she would have applied the word pretty indiscriminately to the flushed sky, the star, the wheeling swallows, the yellow primroses. But within, already, the primroses struck one note, and the wheeling swallows another, and the sky another, and the star another, and, combined, 
they made a chord that was like no other chord. Already her moments were distinguished, and each time she saw Gilead Bomb she saw, and dimly knew that she saw, a different Gilead Bomb. She climbed the hill a little stumblingly, a dark, thin child with braided, dusky hair. She was so tired that things went into a kind of mist the house and the packet boat and the lock and the convict and the piping frogs and the cattails in a marsh and the word evolution. And then, up on the low hilltop, Dali and Plutus lit the lamps and the house had a row of topaz eyes and here was the cedar at the little gate and the smell of box box smell was always of a very special character, dark in hue, cool in temperature, and quite unfathomably old. The four passed through the house gate and went up the winding path between the box and the old, old blush roses and here was the old house dog Roger fawning on the colonel and the topaz eyes were growing bigger, bigger. I am glad to get home, said Miss Serena, in front. It's curious how, every time you go from home, something happens to cure you of a roving disposition. Captain Bob laughed. Never knew you had a roving disposition, Serena. Luna here, now, Luna's got a roving disposition haven you, old girl. Luna, replied Miss Serena with some asperity, Luna makes no effort to alter her disposition. I do. Everybody's got tendencies and notions that it is their bounden duty to suppress. If they don't, it leads to all kind of changes and upheavals, and that is why criticize and Maria. She makes no effort either. It's most unfortunate. The colonel, in front of them all, moved on with a fine serenity. He had taken off his hat, and in the yet warm glow the gray amber of his hair seemed fairly luminous. As he walked he looked appreciatively up at the evening star. He read poetry with a fine, discriminating, masculine taste, and now, with a gesture toward the star, he repeated a line of Byron. Maria and her idiosyncrasies troubled him only when they stood actually athwart his path. Certainly he had never brooded upon them, nor turned them over in his hand and looked at them. She was his son's wife more, he was inclined to think, the pity. She was, therefore, Ashendine, and she was housed at Gilead Bomb. He was inclined to be fond of the child Hagar. As for his son the colonel, in his cooler moments, supposed, damn it, that he and Medway were too much alike to get on together. At any rate, whatever the reason, they did not get on together. Gilead Baum had not seen the younger Ashendine for some years. He was in Europe, whence he wrote, at very long intervals, an amiable traveler's letter. Neither had he and Maria gotten on well together. The house grew large, filling all the foreground. The topaz eyes changed to a wide, soft, diffused light pouring from windows and the open hall door. In it now appeared the figures of the elder Mrs. Ashendine, of the bishop, and Mrs. Legrand coming out upon the porch to welcome the travelers. 
Hankart took her grandmother's kiss and Mrs. Legrand's kiss and the bishop's kiss, and then, after a few moments of standing still in the hall while the agreeable, southern voices rose and fell, she stole away, went up the shallow, worn stairway, turned to the left, and opened the door of her mother's room. She opened it softly. Uncle Plutus says you've got a headache. Maria's voice came from the sofa in the window. Yes, I have. Shut the door softly and don't let us have any light. But I don't mind your sitting by me. The couch was deep and heaped with pillows. Maria's slight, small form was drawn up in a corner, her head high, her hands twisted and locked about her knees. She wore a soft white wrapper tied beneath her breast with a purple ribbon. She had beautiful hair. Thick and long and dusky, it was now loosened and spread until it made a covering for the pillows. Out from its waves flipped her small face, still and exhausted. The headache, after having lasted all day, was going away now at twilight. She just turned her dark eyes upon her daughter. I don't mind your lying down beside me, she said. There's room. Only don't jar my head dash Hagar lay carefully down upon the couch, her head in the hollow of her mother's arm. Did you have a good time? Yes. Pretty good. What did you do? There was another little girl named Sylvie. We played in the hayloft and we made willow baskets and we cut paper dolls out of a goodies lady's book. I named mine Lucy Ashton and Diana Vernon and Rebecca and she didn't know any good names so I named hers for her. We named them Rosalind and Cordelia and Vashti. Then there was a lady who played backgammon with me and I read two books. What were they? One was Gulliver's Travels. I didn't like it altogether, though I liked some of it. The other was Shelley's shorter poems. Oh, Hagar rose to a sitting posture, Dash. I liked that better than anything I've ever read, Dash. You are young to be reading Shelley, said her mother. She spoke with her lips only, her young, pain-still face high upon the pillows. What did you like best? Hagar pondered it. I liked the cloud, and I liked the west wind, and I liked the spirit of night. Someone tapped at the door, and then without waiting for an answer opened it. The elder Mrs. Ashendine entered. Hagar slipped from the sofa and Maria changed her position, though very slightly. Come in, she said, though Mrs. Ashendine was already in. Old Miss, as the major part of Gilead Baum called her, Old Miss crossed the room with a stately tread and took the wing chair. She intended tarrying but a moment, but she was a woman who never stood to talk. She always sat down like a regent, and the standing was done by others. She was a large woman, tall rather than otherwise, of a distinct comeliness, and authoritative oh, authoritative from her black lace cap on her still brown, smoothly parted hair to her low-heeled shoes, 
black against her white stockings. Now she folded her hands upon her black stuffed skirt and regarded Maria. Are you better? Yes, thank you. If you would take my advice, said Mrs. Ashendine, and put horseradish leaves steeped in hot water to your forehead and the back of your neck, you would find it a great relief. I had some lavender water, said Maria. The horseradish would have been far better. Are you coming to supper? No, I think not. I do not care for anything. I am not hungry. I will have Phoebe fetch you a little thin chip beef and a beaten biscuit and a cup of coffee. You must eat. If you gave way less, it would be better for you. Maria looked at her with somber eyes. At once the fingers slipped to other and deeper notes. If I gave way less. Well, yes, I do give way. I have never seen how not to. I suppose if I were clever and braver, I should see Dash. What I mean, said Old Miss with dignity, is that the Lord, for his own good purposes, and it is sinful to question his purposes, regulated society as it is regulated, and placed women where they are placed. No one claims certainly I don't claim that women as women do not see a great deal of hardship. The Bible gives us to understand that it is their punishment. Then I say take your punishment with meekness. It is possible that by doing so you may help earn remission for all. There was always, said Maria, something frightful to me in the old notion of whipping boys for kings and princes. How very bad to be the whipping boy, and how infinitely worse to be the king or prince whose whipping boy you were. A red came into Mrs. Ashendine's face. You are at times positively blasphemous, she said. I do not at all see of what, personally, you have to complain. If Medway is estranged from you, you have probably only yourself to thank Dash. I never wish, said Maria, to see Medway again. Medway's mother rose with stateliness from the wing chair. When it comes to statements like that from a wife, it is time for old-fashioned people like myself to take our leave. Phoebe shall bring you your supper. Hagar, you had better come with me. Leave Hagar here said the other. The bell will ring in ten minutes. Come, child. Stay where you are, Hagar. When the bell rings, she shall come. The elder Mrs. Ashendine's voice deepened. It is hard for me to see the mind of my son's child perverted, filled with all manner of foolish queries and rebellions. Your son's child, answered Maria from among her pillows, happens to be also my child. His family has just had her for a solid week. Now, pray let me have her for an hour. Her eyes, dark and large and her thin, young face, narrowed until the lashes met. I am perfectly aware of how deplorable is the whole situation. If I were wiser and stronger and more heroic, I suppose I should break through it. I suppose I should go away with Hagar. 
I suppose I should learn to work. I suppose I should somehow keep us both. I suppose I might live again. I suppose I might even get a divorce dash. Her mother-in-law towered. The bishop shall talk to you the first thing in the morning dash.